You're listening to Writers on Writing, a show about the art, craft, and business of writing. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. Today, my guest is Matt Coyle, author of the new novel, Odyssey's End. Matt is the author of the best-selling Rick Cahill crime novels, and he knew he wanted to be a crime writer when he was 14, and his father gave him The Simple Art of Murder by Raymond Chandler. He graduated with a degree in English from the University of California at Santa Barbara. His foray into crime fiction was delayed for 30 years as he spent time managing a restaurant, selling golf clubs for various golf companies, and in national sales for a sports licensing company. His 10th novel is Odyssey's End. Matt lives in San Diego, where he's at work at his next novel. On the show, we talked about writing a series versus a standalone, being a pantser, how he keeps the tension going, how he writes about emotional experiences he hasn't personally gone through, time locks, and much more. But before we bring him on, a few words about Patreon. Please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash writersonwriting. There are perks for supporters, and any amount of support helps us to continue bringing the show to you. And so far, we have no sponsors, and we don't particularly want any. A few dollars a month goes far in helping us to continue bringing the show to you. You can also help out by buying your books at bookshop.org slash shop slash writers on writing, where you will find books by authors who've been on the show as well as other books we like. And now for my talk with Matt Coyle. Well, I am so happy to talk with you again. I talked with you, you came on with not your first Rick Cahill, maybe the second or third. Somewhere around there, probably the third. And this is the 10th? Yes, 10th, number 10. Okay, before we get into the book, let's um, begin with kind of how you found your way to writing fiction. How did did this happen? (laughs) Well, it was a long process. Um, I read the genre. I read mysteries since I was a kid. I started with Agatha Christie, uh, Conan, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, later, Raymond Chandler, uh, Ross McDonald, among others. Uh, so I love the genre from day one. And um, and pretty early, I that's what I thought I wanted to do. Um, but to do it, you actually have to do it. And I wasn't ready to do that. Uh, so I graduated from college with a degree in English, which is somewhat of a prerequisite if you want to be a writer. And... Went from job to job, went to kind of industry to industry, but was in the restaurant business for 10 years. I was in um, golf for 10 years. I was in sports licensing for like uh, 16, I think. But somewhere along the line, when I was working for the, uh, I think it was the fourth golf company that went out of business in the 10 years I was in the biz, I saw the handwriting on the wall. I knew it was going to, they were going to go out of business. And you know, I'd write over the years, I would write when the um, inspiration hit me and any writer knows that's good for, for me, very few pages for most, not many either. You know, it's work, writing is work. And um, I wasn't ready to put in the work apparently, but I still thought I was going to be a writer all these years. So when I saw the handwriting on the wall for this one golf company going out of business, I said, 
well, this is it. I have to, um, I have to start writing or, or pretend like it's or quit pretending it's something I'm going to do. I have to move on with my life and actually get a career instead of being a artiste that doesn't do anything. So I, the company went out of business and I wrote what I thought was a book in six months. It was a first draft of many drafts. And luckily I got a job, um, very soon thereafter from a guy I used to work with because I'd taken some time off when the other company, when this company went out of business, had some money saved up. And I, second thing I learned about writing is that, uh, you pretty much, especially when you're writing mystery, you pretty much have to have a day job to be a writer, especially when you haven't written anything yet. So I wrote, uh, so I was probably 40, I was around 43 during that time when I had six months to write. I did it every day and I realized this is what I was put on earth to do, good or bad. It was the thing that I've been missing in my life. Um, and once I got a job again, I found hours in the day to, to write and it took me 10 years to get my first book published. And I wrote six while I had a day job. I quit my day job. December 15th will be the five year anniversary of the last day of my day. December 14th. December 15th is my birthday. And that was my first day of freedom five years ago, almost. Um, so it was a long process. Um, I don't really think I had much to say. My life hasn't been terribly exciting. It's had some um, some sorrow in it, like everyone's life, especially when you get to be my age. But I didn't have much. I didn't really have enough to say. And so, yes, I wish I would have started 10 years earlier. I'd be at least six or seven books ahead. But um, I hadn't figured it out yet. I didn't have a story to tell. And once I finally started to tell that first one in yesterday's Echo, and then revise, revise, revise for 10 years. And then I finally did have a story. And I had a voice. The important thing also, as I'm rambling along, you can cut me off anytime you want. The important thing about all those rejections, all those years of sending out and getting rejected is that I did develop my own voice. Um, the benefit of, of all the time spent rewriting, rewriting, is was um, you can't put a, a price on it. But, of course, when it's happening, it's horrible. But it made me a better writer. If, if somehow I'd gotten published earlier on an earlier version, wherever, wherever my career is now, I don't think it'd be whatever level it is if I'd gotten an earlier version done because it wouldn't have been as good. It wouldn't have gotten my first book got a little bit of um, in the in the genre, in the in the conferences with some critics. It got um, a little bit of acclaim. So that really helped me, you know, kind of be in a better level than I could have been if I'd written a crappy first book or crappier first book. So did you go straight from wanting to write to novels or did you stay with short <laughs> stories at all? I wrote well in college. I wrote some short stories and most of them were for classes. And I think maybe, maybe I wrote a few of my own, but I never tried to get, I never tried to get anything published until I started writing, you know, so I started writing novels and I thought, well, maybe I should write a short story and get some, some on the resume and I never got anything published, but um, I wrote poetry in high school, but for my, for fun. And, uh, but no, I, 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 the long version has always been the thing I think that works for me. Mm -hmm. Do do you still read poetry? Is poetry still a part of your life? I don't, don't tell Reed Farrell Coleman that, but no, I don't read poetry. I mean, someone, someone put something in front of me. No, I can't actually, you know, occasionally you'll be on social media as we all do. And someone will, post something and so I, I will at times read it and i'm always it's a hard um you know it's a hard skill really hard skill to convey something meaningful in such short um short short few amount of words but it's i'm not able to, i'm not able, and 
it was kind of love lorn lost stuff when I was a kid in high school and maybe some funny stuff, but um, I don't think I'd be good enough at it. I remember though, one time uh, I was kind of a smart ass, hard to believe. <laughs> and I had a fifth or sixth grade English teacher. And so we actually had to turn in some sort of writing and I turned in these poems and <laughs> he said, I don't believe you wrote these. I think someone else wrote them for you. <laughs> I got so mad. I got so mad. I, I almost got in real big trouble, but I was what? No. I'm it's a smart a ass, but there's something underneath. It's a compliment. Pardon me? It's a compliment. Yeah, it was. It was, but I didn't see it at the time. I was just mad. <laughs> well, I asked because, um, you know, I was really impressed with the writing in Odyssey's End. And so that's why I was wondering about poetry, because it seems that writers who have some sort of poetry background or read poetry now and then or, you know, spend some time with the genre, um, the writing is different. You know, there's more attention to the language. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think I think especially because with mystery novels, um, the plot is the thing, right? I mean, the plot, if there's no plot, you don't have a mystery. But yeah. often, often, um, I don't know, writing is very similar in in a lot of a lot of different mysteries. And yours very much has a voice um, where, you. you know, it, it seems as if you've spent time with poetry. Well, the, the roots were deep, but, um, you know, I, I probably wrote some poetry. Actually, I did write some poetry in a college. I had a class where I wrote a little bit of poetry, but um, yeah, I admire that. I, I, I admire that people are able to do it, but it's not something I've done in millions of years. Um, I do think, though, it's a very, it's a big compliment. I, pre I appreciate it. Thanks. I do think there is, I do think about, as I'm writing, I don't try to think about much at all, but I do think about rhythm a little bit and I'll read the work out out loud so I can feel the rhythm of the work. And funny, it's funny when, when my publisher and I are picking a um, narrator for auto audible books and they're we've gone through a few, unfortunately um, I'm, I'm kind of listening for someone who picks up on that, like the rhythm. And it's not just kind of reading a court um, transcript or something they can feel the rhythm of the words. Yeah. Well, it's, it's happening in your book. I mean, it's, thank you it's it, there's a lot going on um but okay but let's talk about odyssey's end and how this particular story came about and it's 10th in a series so i want to talk to you about series but yeah. specifically this 10th book let's talk about that for a minute yeah um uh, it's i knew what i when i was writing I and mean, there's a lot of backstory that the thing when I first started writing, I had a couple of rules and I've mentioned this before. And, and one was that Rick was not going to have a sidekick of any kind. No, no comedic sidekick, no physical Superman sidekick and no uh, really wealthy sidekick and get him out of different spots. And as soon as I introduced more uh, McFarland in book two, briefly needed a character, threw her in there and she's, when she and Rick started talking, I just, wow, I like this character. Well, I broke that rule. I've, I've got a sidekick. Um, well, I mean, Rick's really the sidekick because she's smarter than he is. But um, but the one rule I didn't break was everything has to matter, that every bad decision Rick's made in his life, even before book one, um, Yesterday's Echo comes out, they're going to have reverberations. He can't escape his past. He can't escape the bad decisions. He can't escape the physical life that he's lived. Um, and so... 
that is something that's carried on through the books and it makes um i'm always happy when a, a um, critic will say or a reviewer will say you can read as a standalone because mm-hmm. the delicate balance of I mean, there is carryover for him there is baggage that comes through and you don't want to you know but uh, or your old readers re- rehashing some of the earlier stuff and you also don't want you want to give your new readers enough in book 10 enough to understand the character but not too much so they don't want to go back and read books one through nine or what have you <laughs> so it's always a delicate balance so i've gotten i mean here's you, you learn in the first couple pages that he's got cte chronic traumatic encephalopathy which people may know is a pro football disease a brain uh trauma disease that the outcome is generally not good it's a shorter lifespan for people um and that, that came about as the whole idea of he can't escape his past and everything matters, all the physicalness. So he's got that and it's greater rift in his family, um, his wife and his daughter. And he's dealing with that as he's also someone who comes back into his life who he does not. He's had some he's had some real negative things, but has helped him a couple times as well. Um so I wanted to have that because this called Odyssey's end. Um, and I'll let the readers decide or read and find out what that means. But I knew for this book, I wanted to put Rick on a journey that someone from his past. And I wanted him also to be completely isolated without the opportunity for help. And I found a spot, ironically, ironically, a real place where there's very limited, uh, <laughs> very limited um, phone and internet uh, availabilities up in the mountains. And it's off I-5. Uh, it's off the... Um, Pine Village, right? It's Pine Mountain Club. Right. And yeah. it's off the Fraser Park uh, exit. And I have, my, I have family in Northern California. I go to Lake Tahoe every year. And I've probably driven by that exit in my life over a hundred times and I've never taken it. I figure there's probably a gas station up there. Never, I barely can remember it. You just drive by. And a, uh, a woman who I'd met years ago when both our first books came out, we were at um, California crime writers conference and we became friends on Facebook and never, we met then. And of course we're friends on Facebook and had never talked in person to each other since then. And so I was um, marketing my, my, eighth book last redemption on facebook as we do and i get this uh instant message from her saying when are you going to go to pine Pine mountain club and talk about your books and i said well first of all when someone invites me and then secondly when someone tells me where it is i thought it was in pennsylvania for some reason (laughs) but it's it's right it's from where i live it's three hours up the up the i-5 it's amazing it's it's there's a there's mountains back there and it's beautiful and and you're going over the ridge and I do like, you know, there's the very muscular rolling hills on the ridge, but you don't see a whole lot of trees and it's absolutely beautiful, but they have limited um, internet access and phone, you know, and uh, phone coverage. And it was just perfect. And cause I needed a, a spot where Rick could tr- tr- tail somebody, mm-hmm. but cause I was going to go like, I was gonna make it Lake Tahoe. First of all, somewhere up in, up in the mountains of Lake Tahoe. Cause I love Lake Tahoe. But he, he couldn't tail somebody where they had to stop for gas a couple of times. So um, once I went to Pound Mountain, Pound, Pine Mountain Club, and ironically, my girlfriend 
when I told her, I said, I'm sorry about the long story, but I told, I said, Hey, this, this person wants me to come to my mountain club and talk about last year, my next book. And she goes, where is it? I told her, she goes, that's not even a real place. I said, I know. Well, I know, but she goes, they're, they're going to kill you in your sleep up there. <laughs> and so I said, well, then you're going to come with me. But we went up there. The people could not have been nicer. They took us out to dinner. It was, it was just a great bunch of people. <laughs> and it's one of those odd things that, that happens. And, and now I went up there with my last book and uh, we're going to work something out and go up with this one. Anyway, um, so I found the place I needed, this isolated place up in the mountains, absolutely perfect. The cover of the book, it really is, it's not the road that uh, what, what Rick takes in one of these places, but it, it could be. I mean, it's it's all kind of kismet how it all came together. Well, I had to look it up because it's like, well, did he make <laughs> this up? And so I go on the map, I'm like, oh, there is a place. Right. When places are real. I mean, what about that? Do you often use real places or will you go back and forth, make stuff up when you need it, make places up when you need them? It's that's a good question. And it kind of was an important um, question I had to answer when I was writing the, one of the many drafts of my first book. Um, I, I call as a hat tip to Raymond Chandler who lived the last years of his life in La Jolla. I was writing about La Jolla. Hmm. I live in San Diego and I grew up in La Jolla, but um, I can't afford to live there now, of course. Um, but I called it something like La Esmeralda or like as a hat tip to Chandler because um, the last book he wrote, Playback, took place in in La Jolla and he called it Esmeralda, I think. So I had a – and also one of the main reasons was I wanted to have kind of a corrupt police department. I, I have – my brother-in-law was a cop for 33 years. His nephew – my nephew, his son's been a cop now for probably 15 or 16 I mean, I, I have, uh, I believe in law enforcement. I have friends in law enforcement, but you know, private eyes have to bounce up. They have to bang their heads against cops. There has to be a reason for the PI to get involved. And so I wanted, and plus I wanted a corrupt department and I also wanted to be very small. So there wasn't like civilian um, um, overwatch. So I was going to, I called it whatever I call it. I can't even remember what I called the town. I think, I don't think it was La Esmeralda or something else. Anyway, and so I had the police department and all that. And then my brother-in-law, you see, when you're writing your first book, you make your family read their stuff and they have to tell you, this is really good, even though you know, it's not. <laughs> like, you're finally doing something in your life. Um, <laughs> so my brother-in-law, George, George Helmer, said to me, he goes, hey, you know, I really like the book, but why did you, why did you fictionalize La Jolla? And he goes, you know, it's got a lot of cachet, the name people. It's kind of a thought to be a resort area. There's people that have second homes there from all over the country and the world. So you kind of wasted an opportunity. I thought, you know what? That's a good, that's a good point. And it doesn't have a police department years and years ago. It had a substation, but it doesn't matter. Cause you open up every novel and it says, none of this is true. There's some page where it says, you know, none of this. <laughs> so why, why can't I give them their own police department? So I did. And since then I do try the only time, the only time I'll give something false, a false name or um, even a false address is if something bad happens there, there's a restaurant where in my first book where uh, drug deals went down, which um, being in the restaurant business, that may have been something that happened in the restaurant business, but I didn't want to give the restaurant a bad name. So I, I fictionalized the name. And, um, but other than that, I've pretty much stayed, I try to make everything true and, you know, develop my own f fiction out of the truths that happened there. Um, but the ironic thing about it, there was a restaurant, one of my favorite restaurants I used to go to all the time, but I hadn't gone in a while. I put it in my first book, put the name in there, talked about how great the chef is and how he had a cookbook of soups, which is all true. 
And then after, right before my book was going to come out, I was driving by there. It was in Pacific Beach and it was closed. <laughs> <laughs> they closed it. Uh, anyway, so that's what could happen. Because I want to do that because I know John Lesquois famously talks about the restaurants he goes to in San Francisco and he never has to pay for a meal. So I wanted to take advantage <laughs> of that, but it didn't work out for me. Well, you, there are a couple of Easter eggs, I suppose. There's Warwick's bookstore. Yes. In- um, La Jolla or Del Mar? La Jolla. La Jolla. And then yeah. you mentioned Reed Farrell Coleman, too. Um, <laughs> I gave Reed a hat tip, yes. Reed and and uh, I think Robert Crace both have been helpful to me on my, my climb up each rung of the ladder. So, yeah, I, I had to do that. Do you ever do those? You know, sometimes I see auctions, um, Mystery Writers of America, or I don't know, Sisters in Crime has done it, but oh, where, yeah. you know, name a character, you know, after, have you done that? Like every book, really? every book. And I had one in this book, actually, the guy who won had a very, you know, it wasn't John Smith, but it could have been. <laughs> and he said, I said, cause I like to have, you know, names are important to me, yeah. but I appreciate, you know, people supporting the charities are always involved in these situations, but Somebody goes, but he told me, and I didn't even say, I didn't even mention, like, oh, congratulations, I'll put your name in. But he goes, hey, if, in case you, I know my name's kind of boring, but I have an interesting middle name. So he gave me the middle name and I ended up using it. I didn't, the guy, he ended up being a somewhat, somewhat important character. Not huge, but a kind of important peripheral character. That's not really on the page. That's not seen on the page. But um, so he did have the interesting middle name, which I was able to, to stick in there. But, you know, I do it all the time. And sometimes you get really lucky. Sometimes you can have somebody, and sometimes they'll say, hey, you can use my, you can use this name or you can use my, I have a, I, you can use my middle name as the first name, whatever you want. And I always, I just ask them when they do, I said, is it okay if I kill you? And is it, is it okay if I make you a, a bad guy or gal? And they're pretty much like, yeah, of course. <laughs> I did, um, I did have one guy who's, who's a, who's a friend now. He's a big supporter. Um, he did something very nasty to Rick and then um, he wasn't in the next book. We'll just say that or any thereafter. And that well, was kind of an Easter egg for him, by the way. He didn't know. Well, what about Rick? Like Rick Cahill. How did you come up with that name? That's your, your protagonist throughout all of these novels. Yeah. Um, I wanted as I wanted another hat tip to Chandler, Raymond Chandler, RC. And I want to have that hard C sound. Rick Cahill um, wanted to be short and I really wanted the hard C to kind of, you know, hit. Um, and I, and because I'm of Irish descent, you wouldn't tell if I look at my pale skin. Um, I wanted to, something that was probably Irish. And so I went through and looked um, through a bunch of different Irish names. And it, it's also, it can be Scottish or Irish Cahill apparently. Um, but I found it. I even found the coat of arms. Um, and I said, yeah, I, I think it also meant something that kind of, I can't remember what it is now, but it, Kind of made sense for Rick. Something like it was kind of like um, maybe something similar to a knight, um, something like that. Uh, so yeah, but our names are important. They're fun. Sometimes, sometimes they can. You know, you just can't find the right one, then you finally do. Um, what but about, uh, it, it, how about Moira? Moira. Moira? <laughs> <laughs> Moira's name, her, her first name was named after a, a woman, a woman. We were children back then, someone I dated in college. And I was, I wrote this book for 20 years. So um, the first book, 
So she was, uh, we dated when I was in college. So she had a big influence on me and it was kind of a hat tip to her. And I left her name, not her last name. Uh, I left the name in there and uh, kind of liked it. McFarland, uh, again, it's an Irish background. Um, I don't know why someone so heavily on that, but it kind of, you know, Moira McFarland kind of flows. So series then, did you know this was going to be a series? I mean, you couldn't have known that you would go at least to book 10, if not 20 or whatever you have planned. But yeah. I mean, how, how did that come together? Or did you write the first one to be a standalone if it needed to be? I always want, I just wanted to uh, write a book because that's what I thought I was going to do. That's why I told people when I had a degree in English when I was working in restaurants that no, I'm going to be a writer someday. And um, so I just want to write one to do it. I, Cause I, I did have some, like I said, the restaurant, I mean, uh, the, the golf company I worked for went out of business and um, I said, well, this is the time you have to do it. So I, 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 I it would be nice to write more than one, but I really just want to write one. But I realized as I was revising and revising, revising that there was more about Rick that I wanted to learn. And to do, cause I, I learned more about him every, um, every book. I don't, I don't outline. I didn't have a huge character arc. I kind of turned into one that I understand now, but I didn't have a huge character arc. I mean, it went to places I never would have imagined. Um, but yeah, I went midway through maybe, you know, the third revision, I realized, well, I want this to be more than just one. And lucky enough, I've been able to write 10 of them. So do you see, I mean, do you see an end for the character? Are you getting tired of them or do you, can you see like five more books or do you say, I guess what I'm asking, I guess what I'm asking is sort of like with TV, you know, they have like the Bible for the, you know, they want six, ep they want six seasons. Right. And mm -hmm. over the six seasons, this is what all is going to happen with all the main characters. Is that something you do? No. It's funny you mentioned Bible because I do think they're important in series, especially when you're in 10 books. Mm -hmm. The Bible being, uh, for one one thing about Bible being, is for characters. You have to remember who the characters are. It's just a simple way to who they are, who they are, the background, and you may write out extensive things that um, don't ever show in the book. But every after every book, I said, well, now is the time I have a little time, free time, write the Bible, write the Bible. So make it easier for yourself instead of having to go back and read passages. Well, let me see. I think I introduced this character in the third book and uh, 10 books in no Bible. There's no Bible coming. Um, but in terms of the character, uh, I think if I were to stop now, or let's just say his world, if I were to stop now with Rick, it, it would be a good place to stop. Um, I am writing something different right now, completely different. Um, so far in third person in all my 20 years writing one character, I've been in first person. I'm in one guy's head. So it's a whole new experience for me. Um, but I think if, if this is Odyssey's end, then I think it, it ended on a good spot It make it, it finished where if it, if it did, I'm happy with where it would stop. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause it, I, I see what you mean without talking about the end. Um, but I, I think some time ago because he has cte i thought he might have passed away in at the end of this book of course he didn't he's very much alive but did you have that in mind that he was gonna die by this point and he just kept living <laughs> uh i will say that there have been a couple different times when i was going to kill him 
and whether that <laughs> killed them in this book or not, they can read and find out. But um, yeah, the, I, I didn't expect, I don't expect or didn't expect Rick to, to die from a disease, expected him to die from a violent life that he's, it doesn't have to be as violent as it is, but he makes choices that lead him down paths where he just didn't pursue things so much. If he just was, um, he could just more comfortable being uh, a family man, even though he's, he desperately wants to be a family man. Um, then he could, he could live a different life, but he's, that's his major flaw. Is he has to find the truth of the matter, no matter where it goes. Hmm. Read to us. Oh, okay. I'm not the best <laughs> reader. Damn it. You're fine. All right. This is chapter one. Um, I hadn't seen, I'm sorry. I hadn't seen Peter Stone in five years. Not since the night he saved my life. When he wielded a shotgun with deadly efficiency. Five years before that, he tried to kill me with a handgun. Maybe I wouldn't have been so lucky the first time if he'd had the shotgun. Stone had changed a lot since that night he'd blown away two assassins in his lair up in the hills above La Jolla. His gray hair still spiked to a widow's peak dagger point on his long forehead, but now the dagger started farther up. His eyes still beamed menace, but they lost their soulless void, soulless sharp void. Still a predator, even with his Parkinson palsy, but less dangerous. His once lean athletic frame, now thin and slumped and leaning on an ivory-handled cane. As if the sum of a lifetime of malicious machinations finally weighed him down, pulled at him. Could the ravages of life possibly made Peter Stone human? Maybe, but I doubted it. Yet there he stood on my porch at 7.30 a.m. in early November, slightly stooped, a shudder to his left hand and his head, looking very much human even vulnerable. But like wild animals, former casino owners and real estate moguls are at their most dangerous when injured, even those who no longer exist. That's why I grabbed a Colt Python off the top shelf in my hall closet after I checked the peephole in the front door. And I had guns hidden all over the house. One of the reasons my estranged wife took our child to live with her parents, she thought I was paranoid. Maybe I was. But when Peter Stone is standing on your porch, there is no such thing as paranoia. I opened the door. Stone, it wasn't an invitation, a greeting, or a question, just a statement. A bad memory that had suddenly returned, unexpectedly, like cancer after decades of remission. Rick, you've aged, and the glasses are new since our last encounter. His voice had lost some of its melodious command, the hot tar and asphalt viscosity that used to make each verbal barb sink beneath the sink, sink deep beneath the skin was gone. Now a slight creak thinned out the timber. Still, a fresh gleam, a fresh gleam shined the menace in Stone's pale gray eyes. He was happy with himself. Always was when he could stick a knife in and twist it. Visually, his dig had no merit. I looked much the same as I had that night on the hill above the ocean when he saved my life. I did have scars, more than when Stone last saw me, but my collared shirt covered them, covered most of them, and my glasses hid the remaining hollow under my eye. The real damage from my life of violence was invisible, hiding in the worlds of my brain, CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, prognosis, diminishing cognitive capabilities, dementia, and early death. One of its symptoms, irrational rage, had been the final slice through my marriage that now hung together by a single thread stretched from San Diego to Santa Barbara. When my wife and 20-month-old daughter now lived, 
only 210 miles away, but a lifetime when I was apart from my family. What do you want, Stone? Is there an, is there an FBI minder in a dark sedan parked on the curb? I stretched my neck to look around him through the front door. Shouldn't you be off playing dominoes in a clubhouse in Sun City under an assumed name? Stone had gone into witness protection shortly after testifying against a Russian mob boss after he saved my life. You don't have many friends in San Diego, but there still must be plenty of enemies. At best, I'm somewhere in between. No vengeance in my voice, maybe a trace of sarcasm to cover the anxiety I always felt when Peter Stone barged back into my life. And he had tried to kill me. But saving my life once with a gun and brokering for it another time with a phone evened that out. The other stuff was gone, if not forgotten. Still, Peter Stone was not a man you wanted to see standing on your front porch at any time of day. Really not a man you wanted to see anywhere. Aren't you going to invite me in? He smiled, a predator's grin. You haven't told me what you want. If it's breakfast, you're too late. I want to hire you. That's the first Thank chapter. Thank you. You know, Thank you, you so many things in that first chapter, and that, and which is why the book does stand alone. I mean, it's it's of course part of the series, but if someone came to this book having read nothing of yours, they wouldn't be lost, right? I mean, you give us the setting. You give us the character, you give us some of his backstory, his wife, his kid, his illness, and then, um, you know, his connection with this guy at his door. So you do all this stuff in the first chapter, and first chapters, of course, are really important. Maybe not as important because you have nine books before this one, mm. but nevertheless, it's important for a new reader. And so talk about that. I mean... Is that something you had to, like, check off? Okay, yeah, I, I, we know where he lives. Okay, check. We know that, you know, he has four days or whatever to to deal with. Um, or does is that in here? I um, Four days isn't in here, but the fact is, is that this guy is getting out. And he's going to... Oh, yes, that comes, that comes in uh, the next chapter. But, the next chapter. Um, yeah, the... Hopefully for new readers, there's enough uh, their backstory and also enough of this, I guess it's pretty maybe on the thread of being overdone, the menace of Stone. But for continuing readers, it's like, oh, shit, Peter Stone's back. And mm -hmm. I think I think a lot of people people like Peter Stone. You always like the villain. I, I love writing him. Um, and so I think there's a little for, for both readers. There's and you know, they have a sense that Stone's a bad guy, but the old readers are like, oh shit! And like I said, Peter Stone's back in the game, um, and I definitely wanted to have that in this book, whether it's the end or Odyssey's end, is um, somebody from his past. And actually, there I see Stone is almost like a um, sort of like a father figure. Uh, Rick lost his father when he was 19 and he'd had highs and lows with his dad and stone. Um, I mean, there's malice. There's, there's real malice and there's real um, malevolence to this guy, but he sort of does have a soft spot for Rick and, and uh, he did save his life a couple of times. I mean, he saved his own life too, but he, he did broker for his life on the phone in an earlier book. And I wanted to have that um, in this book, but in terms of the first chapter, yeah, I think I'm, I'm I'm happy with how it turned out. Just enough, hopefully not too much, of backstory and to get the momentum to the story, you know, and 
I think the as I mentioned, the older re- the returning readers realize, wow, this is going to this mean something, Peter Stone, and then hopefully the new readers get enough. Like this guy seems like a bad guy. Why does he want to hurt Rick? What about writing a villain? Because he, you know, he has depth. He has um, a daughter he cares about, um, yeah. and I mean, he has re you know a few reasons why he wants Rick to find her, but. Yet he's not a two-dimensional character. And so, and you've had other villains. And I wonder if you'd just talk about writing the villain. Yeah, everybody loves writing the villains. <laughs> uh, I don't, it's, I'm sure I, this is not the first time it's ever been said, but my, a mentor to me, Carolyn Wheat, who wrote uh, Mysteries and, and has taught uh, writing for many years. I took classes from her at UCSD Extension a long time ago, 20 years ago, probably. Um, it's been said before she's you know the villain thinks he's the hero in the story and, and so yes you want them to be evil but they have to they have to have goals too i started thinking of every character on every on the every page they have goals small big whoever the characters are they have goals so i try to keep that in mind but with uh you know so, you know when you when you have power and um and if you if you're kind of messed up and you can manipulate people you enjoy doing that and you may not see you may see it as well you know, these, these people deserve to be manipulated. I mean, I think it is a bad thing, but you enjoy doing it. And Peter Stone clearly enjoys doing it. But he does, yes, he, when I first started writing him in the first book, he goes all the way back to yesterday's Echo. Um, I did have him in early drafts, just bad guy, bad guy, bad guy. And then as I was, and I don't, I don't really outline. So I, I don't, I have an idea where the end of all stories are. And an inciting incident, but then I have to find out how to get there. And so as a, the more I wrote Peter Stone, the more I realized, well, for him to do these things, there has to be a deeper reason. And there was. He just, it, he, his daughter is very important to him. And um, family is somewhat important to him in his very twisted way. So, yeah, I have to, I wanted to give him um, a reason. There's never just one reason with Peter, but uh, at least a legitimate reason for him to be uh, for to to have, to to have Rick do what needs to be done. The only, I've written a psychopath. I've written a psychopathic character, but I've written a straight psychopath in um, second book. And I think with a psychopath, I don't know if you can find the the good in that or any kind of shade of good in them. So I think that's the one character you can write where it's just evil for evil's sake. Um, but every character can't be that way. Like I said, they have to have they have goals. They have I mean, their goals might be twisted, but they have a reason for their existence, not just to um, be horrible and mean. But there are people like that. that and that's why they're psychopaths. The reason for their existence is to manipulate. So because you you said you don't plot, no much, and you don't have a Bible. So, so it's how do you track then? I mean, how do you <laughs> track? Do you have like journals? Do you have your office looks very neat, but I don't know what's on the other other walls. Do you have like things on the wall with cork boards? I mean, how do you keep track of everything? Um, I've done storyboarding before. I think I did it revising. Might have been the first or second book. Different stickies, different color stickies, and the whole thing, and. Uh, I tried it once and it kind of helped, but um, I just, uh, I have to, I have to go back and read stuff that I wrote before that I, I actually have to waste time doing. That. 
because I'm too stupid to write a Bible, but I do it. And regarding the plotting and things like that, I, 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 the last, not so much this book, maybe the last three books before this one, I said, well, you know, you're not doing this right. Um, it's very hard the way you write these. Um, your first drafts are very long. They're, they really are an outline themselves. It's very inefficient because I'll cut 30,000 words from a first draft and then add 15 or something like that. It's not efficient. There's better ways to do this. But uh, the way my brain works, it, it I've just stunted myself trying to do it. And I, stupidly, I've tried to do it more than one book where when I'm writing a series of a character I've written for 20 years, I've been in this, it took me 10 years to get published. I've been in his head for 20 years. Here's what I need to do. I need to have, yes, I need to have a target out there. I can figure that out. And inciting in an incident, yes, but I have to have a major subplot for Rick. What's going on in his life where he takes a case that'll make it more difficult? What is he struggling with internal, internally? That's the most important thing to me is Rick's subplot. Yes, you got to have a, you got to have a forward momentum, forward plot, but I want to make those two things, each should make the other difficult, more difficult for him to deal with. Um, so when I get stuck, and this is why I'm having a problem with the book right now, because I don't have a Rick. When I get stuck, I just go, well, put Rick in a situation and let him do what he does. Let him make mistakes. Let him be a bulldog. Let him be righteous and, and scary at times. Uh, and so then I can always figure my way through. And it's like I said, it's very inefficient, but it's worked for me. It's a lot. There's a lot of revision. I, I revise, um, I don't know, eight, nine times or something as I go. They're not huge revisions, but they're just revise, revise, revise. I'm constantly revising. I think any, I heard Robert Crace in his uh, book signing one time saying, um, you know, I never stop revising. And I get, I'd, I'm the same way. I'm like, I, I edited to re for time, but I edit, I always edit when I read. Yeah. And, and then sometimes this is for time, but sometimes I go, why didn't I take that out the 15th time I read it? Um, anyway, so it's an inefficient process. I, I never, I'm, when I'm asked, if I'm asked at like a conferences, um, there's some teaching conferences. I don't really teach. Um, I can critique. I'm a very good critiquer. Um, but I really can't teach what I do. I mean, I, could, I, don't, I wouldn't want anybody to do it. I, I could explain what I do, but I really couldn't teach it because it's it's inefficient and, and who would want to learn that and, um but it is the one thing i really believe in is your self your subconscious just be open to it if you're gonna write this way if you're gonna be a blank pager or a, a pantser you've got to rely on your self your um, self-conscious your your conscious whatever your soul conscious well you subconscious you <laughs> i'm self-conscious about my subconscious um and my I mentioned Carolyn Wheat. She said, you know, Matt, your your uh, subconscious is a much better writer than you are. I go, well, yeah, I know you're right. But I think your brain's always working on it, but you don't even know it. Yeah. Um, so I believe sometimes there'll be stuff that I don't know why I'm putting it in. I don't know where it's going to go, if it makes sense. But I leave it in on that first early drafts because my brain is telling me, my subconscious is telling me, um this is important sometimes it is sometimes it isn't more time more times than not it is but it's messy yeah yeah well i guess i guess it is messier for pantsers right um but more most people are pantsers i think i mean i i talk to very few writers who say they plot it all out it's surprising because when i first started writing mysteries i figured that everybody would be a, a plotter outliner because you know you gotta you gotta have plots you gotta this has to connect here and all that 
And like you say, the majority of the ones I talk to aren't. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's always character first. And I think for me, the the plot comes from the character. It comes from decision Rick's, Rick makes, but you have to make it realistic. You know, if he makes this bad mistake, how is it going to affect things? And does it work in as in this unreal and as real as possible in this unreal um, situation we put it in? So, yeah, yeah. Um, character drives plot for me. Character's king. Well, you also, in, in this book, you have um, the time lock of four days, right? Which we find out pretty quickly that he's <laughs> getting out of prison and yeah. four days to find the daughter. Right. So, talk about time locks. And as well, I mean, the fact that Rick is sick is you know, a different kind of time lock, right? I mean, I mean, we don't know yeah. when he's going to go, but we know he has this illness. And so I'd like to hear also why you gave him that particular illness, as well as the four days, you know, creating this time lock with the plot. Yeah, regarding the CTE, I never would imagine giving my character a potential fatal disease when I started writing him all those years ago. It's not my publisher's favorite thing. Um <laughs> But it was that one rule I had that I kept, which is everything matters. Every bad decision, every physical, everything leaves a scar. And I started to think about his life. He'd been a, a he played football since he was a kid, Pop Warner football through, I think, two years of college. Um, he boxed Golden Gloves three or four years um, as a teenager. He was a cop. He had been a private eye. He's had many concussions as a private eye or head trauma, period. And I started to think, I don't see how you can escape having CT. Honest, there's probably a lot of us. Unfortunately, I found out a friend of mine has been pre-diagnosed. The diagnosis, as of now, comes after death and they look at your brain. But every football player that ever opened their brain has had it. I have a friend who's CHP who's been pre-diagnosed with it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's there's probably soccer players that have it. And all the heading. Um, it's I think it's something that's a lot more vast than we think than we know at this point. And so I think, well, if I'm going to be true to this thing. Um, He's got it. And what what can I do with it? Do I have to give it to him? No. But it it, it certainly worked. I think it's worked for the books I put. I mean, what, here's the one thing about it is that once you give it to him, it can't go away. Um, I couldn't, like, he books, book, Last Redemption, book eight, gave him CTE or pre-diagnosed with it. And so it, it, was, it worked for the, for the hook, the emotional hook in the book. Um, well, in book nine, maybe I'll go on to something else. But no, I figured, no, you can't run away from it. If you're going to give it to him, you have to, he's got to live it out. So that's where he is now, three or two books later after eight, number 10. He's got it. He can't get away from it. It's affecting, um, it's affecting his life, his family life, along with the bad decisions he makes. Um, and so I wanted to have that pressure along with the four days you mentioned pressure. I always look for pressure when I'm writing anything I want to have, um, you know, pressure from internally, externally. And he's got that. And he's got, you know, why, why am I doing this last, you know, he, well, there's a reason he, he works. He ends up working for Peter Stone. <laughs> Peter Stone. It's not a, it's not a spoiler. I mean, you asked him on page three, I want to hire you. Um, he knows he's going to die younger than most 
fathers and, or he thinks he is. And, and he wants to have a nest egg for his daughter when, when life, you know, life knocks you down. He wants her to be able to, to be able to get back up with financial assistance if necessary. And that's why he's still working as a PI. What he only thing he knows how to do. And Peter Stone offers him a lot of money and, and he knows Peter Stone is, oh, I can't work for Peter Stone, but there's the nest egg. There's a nice, huge advance to the nest egg. So I'm going to take this case, this one case that where I've said, I'm, you know, I don't want to get physically involved anymore, but the payoff's too big. It's for my family. It's for my daughter. Um, so that's the, that's the extra pressure. That's the internal pressure for him to take the case. And then, you know, things go haywire, um, way haywire. Way haywire. Yeah, they do, which is fun. Um, you know, I, I, I wonder if you could talk about like Rick as a father, because I emailed you earlier in the week because I, the way you write about him being a father, I'm like, I didn't know, I didn't know Matt had children. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's feel, it was so resonant and so emotional. And then you said, no, I, I don't have kids, but you know, you talked about something that you went through. Yeah. So, you know, talk about that. Like, when you need to, as a writer, plug into, um, you know, a character has a life you haven't led, but you needed to be authentic. I mean, how did you, how did you do that? How did you do that with Rick? Yeah, well, it's a compliment that you you mentioned that, you know, you could see that you could see me as a parent. Uh, for many reasons, but the writing, especially, and there's a friend, friend I mentioned who um, I gave a grisly death to in one of my books. Um, he's, he's father of daughters. And he said, I gave him, he got an early copy and uh, he said, man, you, you did a really good job writing father. And I thought, wow, that's, you know, I'm on the right track. I felt good about that. No, I don't have any, I don't have any kids. Um, we did lose. Uh, I lost my niece. My family lost the, their grandchild, their daughter. Um, when she was 16, I was um, 32, I think. First niece, first grandkid of the family. And um, I, I, that, that, I know that's affected me in a lot of different ways. Something I, I and she was my niece. And my, I know my, my late brother-in-law and my sister um, changed their lives completely. But it's affected me in deeper ways than I've been, ever been able to um vocalize and i i think ironically i was at um BoucherCon last year in minneapolis and i was on the weirdest panel so weird it was um like private eyes and um grief i thought well this is <laughs> this is nuts you know tough I, i'm glad i wasn't the moderator but actually i started to think about things and, and it got kind of hit me very hard i i, I kind of had a uh a uh something finally i finally figured something out in my writing because there's some um there's some melancholy in the writing i hope it's not all melancholy but there's some melancholy to rick and i i realized that the death of my niece has affected me i i never knew why i wrote kind of dark or melancholy-ish at times i mean it's not i don't want people to think it's a drag reading the books because there's there's there are light moments and there are violent moments um but i realized that um I really think it all goes back to, to losing my niece. And like I said, it's as it, horrible as that is. I'm not, I wasn't her parent and I wasn't her grandmother um, or grandfather. 
but something in that loss is, is deeply affected me that um, I don't really talk about. And I, it, it does show that's where I think um, the feeling of a parent comes in, although I've never had the opportunity, something there. Um, I think something there uh, I found um, mm -hmm. and maybe that's, I'm really happy that people think I could be a parent. Um, I always thought I was going to be a parent, but things go, sometimes timing doesn't work out in life, but um, and it's, you know, it's not my first choice not to be a parent, but um, yeah, I, I didn't know. It's funny because when I was talking about being a pantser and, and you asked about an art, you asked about a Bible and I'm like, but <laughs> If I had an arc or something, like I never, Rick was not, Rick was not even going to have a girlfriend probably when I first started writing him. He wasn't going to have a family by any means, no wife, no kid, no kid, no way. And when I was writing Last Redemption, I realized um, he'd fallen in love again after losing his first wife um, to murder, which is before the first book. Well, if, he's, if you if he's married and he wants a kid and they can actually have a kid, there's, there's problems for them to get there, but, um, well, he had to have a kid. That's where, that's where the, the, the track took him. And then also it made everything, you know, it, it changed everything for him because Rick can do dumb stuff. Rick can be the bulldog and do these things that, um, make these decisions that put him in danger because he's got to find the truth. And, and also, if he dies, his dog Midnight will be bummed, but that's, I mean, there, there's a few people who would care, but um, now he's got a, a wife and a child, a child. So he's really, you know, he, he's got to really think about these decisions he's making. There's, it, it brought so much more um, weight to the, to every decision he makes. And still he makes a lot of dumb ones, but um, like I didn't want to write about it. I didn't want to write about having kids. Did not want to do that. And then I realized, well, you're gonna, it's going to make the story better. And uh, I'm glad I did. Uh, I'm not great. I'm happy that people can believe I'm a father. I'm not great about writing um, everyday stuff with them. So <laughs> in each book, that there's not the, the family's away a lot, but um, <laughs> that adds to Rick's angst, which is good. I mean, Rick's angst is what I, you know, that's why I started doing this, writing Rick with angst. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I but. To reiterate and, and bore the listeners, never expected, never expected Rick to have a kid, a wife, a kid, any of that. And then that's the beauty of not maybe sketching things out mm -hmm. for me is, and I, and I heard the, the great, um, why am I blanking on his, um, um, Perry, why do I always forget his first name? Thomas Perry. Mm -hmm. The great Thomas Perry, I heard, I don't even know if I was published at the time, at a Sisters in Crime thing, um, luncheon, say, you know, no, I, I don't outline. He goes, how could I, if, I, if it's going to take me a year to write a book, how could I know about more about the character yeah. before I start writing him than after I've written him for a year? And, and that I get. And how could I know enough about Rick 20 years ago when I started writing him to know that, you know, it would be a good idea to introduce a family to him book eight well the wonderful thing about fiction too is you can put all that in like you can put all that emotion from yeah. somewhere you know it, it yeah you know I, I i you asked a really good question you touched upon it i didn't quite give the the full answer is that as a writer 
we all have, and you get to be a certain age, you all have life experiences. And I heard Jack Carr actually do it a lot better than I could um, describe it. But so you take, you take your own life's experiences. I've lost, as I just mentioned, I've lost people in my life. I've, uh, a lot of people in my life. And so, but I've never had a friend die in front of me, thank God. But, um, you know, Rick has already seen the aftermath of such. And so you bring the real emotion you feel and you put it in a situation that you can never, that you've never been in, hopefully you never have to be. But the emotions are real. You can find the real emotions. That's all that writing is about is finding true emotions and then trying to direct them into unreal situations that hopefully you'll never have to be in. And so um, once you learn how to dig into there, um, you know, I think that 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 makes you a much better writer. I heard Robert Grace one time, speaking of Bob again, at a, at a reading and he was, he's reading something he goes you know i was reading this and it made me cry his own work and 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 you know which you know some people may not understand that but i get it you know because you you feel it and you you've put your real life into it so you, it's real life emotion so um that's the key especially when you've lived a kind of a boring life like me <laughs> well tell me about um the current project you said you're writing in third person um, you've just written 10 books with Rick, um, the first person point of view. So yeah. why did you choose that? And how is that? I mean, do you like it? Do you prefer it? Do you prefer first person? Do you wish you hadn't done this? I mean, it's still early. <laughs> <laughs> I do prefer first person. Why? I mean, uh, um, just, I think it's a cheat. I think it's easier. Um, I haven't written third person since I was in college, which was a few decades ago. Uh, it, but the, it's limiting, of course. And I still haven't, I need to learn. I need to remember that there's things I can show in third person that the, your protagonist doesn't see. <laughs> I remember how to do that. Um, so that's the benefit. The reader and, and can be ahead of the protagonist. Um, and they're going to be, and there's often different points of view, which is good too. Uh, it just, I, and I'm not, I'm not wedded to it, actually. I'm early in, I'm, I'm way behind where I wanted to be, but I'm early in the writing of this story. So, and I'm realizing that if it doesn't go the way I want to, that I can go back and write it first person and figure it out. I don't want it to be too much like Rick and it, and there, it is, there's some similarities, but maybe that's another reason I want to be in third person. But, um, the, the, the premise is a <laughs> premise. People are going, it sounds like Rick. <laughs> But uh, it's different. Trust me. The pre the pre the premise is that um, ex cop um, lost a job on the force for reasons we don't know, and there's only really only one person that aside from him that knows why. And uh, he did lose a daughter. Um, he lost a daughter to I haven't figured that out yet. As I as I being a blank pager, I don't need to know that yet. I just need to have the the motion of it. I'll figure out exactly why at some point. But she's dead. It was either through uh, drugs or sex trade. And I never really wanted to go into sex trade, but I'm thinking maybe maybe that's something I should do. But anyway, he's got a cop father um, and who's ill. And he is a PI, but he's not doing that well. And he needs to, for whatever reason, I haven't figured out the whole Medicare situation either for what's covered for his dad yet. But he needs to help his dad with... Um, with 24-hour care that his father doesn't want to have. Um, so he needs to make money more than he's making. And the opportunity comes to be a, to fill in Moonlight as a 
public defender investigator and my girlfriend's a public defender and I've got all the inside information and she's got stories that every day there's something interesting that happens. So I want to put this fish out of water, this fish out of water in a place he doesn't want to be, but he has to be to help his father and his father cannot stand the fact that he's working for the other team. And like I said, I got a cop family background, but um, my girlfriend has really shown, I've, I've seen the other, I try to be open-minded, but I've also seen how I tried, I've seen how, um, I mean, all the power is on the uh, the side of the state. They've got, you, know, you think about, you see Johnny Cochran and all those situations. You think, wow, how could a poor um, district attorney battle all that? Well, they've got, they've got unlimited funds to go investigate, to do all this, where hmm. public defenders, I mean, are just dying, everyday public defenders, their job is so hard. And it's, they have so too many cases. And so, but they do have investigators. And, but I want, I want the, uh, as I'm running on here, that the, 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 the thing is in, that I like is that he's a true believer on the, on the other side of the blue line, thin blue line. And she's a true believer in being a public defender and the, who it's a woman and they end up teaming up together. And I want that tension. There's also going to be some romantic tension, tension as well, but I want that tension of two true believers trying to find the truth and where it takes them. Um, so that I want that I had figured out. Two years ago, when Juliet and I first started talking about it, and then I realized, well, I got to figure the story, out. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and I got to do it in third person, multiple points of views. I, I'm potentially multiple points of views, so so I'm I'm excited about it, but I haven't. Um, I need to blank page away and figure it out because I don't have a fallback. Like, well, I'm stuck. Just throw something in front of Rick. He'll 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 find the way for you. Well, I got to find it on my own, so. But it sounds like you discover as you go, right? I mean, you're like something has yes. to happen. Something has exactly. to happen. Exactly. Exactly. That's what I have to remind myself every day is that wade through it. Be messy. It'll work. Hmm. Well, my goodness, the hour has spun by. Um before we go, a couple of things. One, what are you reading? Well, um, I'm reading a friend's book right now for a blurb. Uh, it's going to be a new, it's going to be a thriller for her. It's a little different than what she normally writes. So, I, so I don't, I can't remember the title. It's Terry Shames. I'm sorry, Terry. I can't remember the title. It's not, you know, it's not out yet. Uh, and so I, do, I, um, I'm really looking forward to, uh, Connelly's next book. It's coming to San Diego, which is so rare. Uh, the week before that, the week before Odyssey's end comes out, his newest, um, it's actually a Bosch and um, and Lincoln Lawyer book, hmm. so I'm I'm really looking forward to reading that. But I um, right now I'm, I'm reading for a blurb, so and then I've um, got another blurb to do, and then I'm actually at Men of Mystery. I am interviewing um, Matthew Quirk, um, mm-hmm. so I've got to. I don't. I've read most of Matt's books, so I got to do a little very soon. Um, do a little more work on that. And what are you watching? Okay, uh, good question. Um, I think it's the we've, we've gone past the golden age of tele, the second golden age of television. I think ten years ago, best TV ever. Um, you had maybe longer than ten years ago, but you were you know you see Breaking Bad. You had um, before that you had Deadwood. You had uh, Sopranos. I mean, it's just so much good television. 
but the worst, you also have the worst television. I mean, you have absolute worst and then you have absolute best. I think we're kind of, we're finding our way back now. And um, what's the one I, I'm not watching it currently, but I'm waiting for the second season. Of course, we're all waiting with the, the strike <laughs> and everything, but it's um, severance on Apple. Have you watched that? No, I haven't. It's so good. It's so different. Um, they kind of, when they did the, um, promoing for it, they made it think it was a straight comedy. It's not, it's, it's very, it's dark, weird, interesting. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm blanking on all the actors. I'm looking at them, but I'm blanking on their names. Um, but it's really interesting. I've never seen anything like it. It's about this where people go to work and they are able to separate their home and work life, um, through an operate where they've had, they've had some bad things in their personal life and they're miserable there. So when they're in their personal life, they know they have a different life, but they, they don't know their other lives and the work they do, the work they do, it seems like really doesn't make much sense. It's just uh, some need needless computer work, but it's all going somewhere and um, really good. And, um, I think Will Ferrell's behind it. Oh, and um, um, Ben Stiller, I don't know if he's, I don't, he directed maybe the first episode or something. I, I, he's somehow attached. I know that. I know he directed one of the episodes. I don't know if he's a showrunner, but. Um, and there's, there's a major character in it that was in Parks and Recreation, right? Yeah, I always blank on his name. I yeah, always blank I on his name. Yeah. And he's really good. Yeah. Really. I mean, he really does a great job in uh, dramatic parts, but, but it's, it's all, it's all very, very strange, but really yeah. good. Yeah. And then finally, advice or uh, tips for the writers listening. My advice is is, is uh, simple: uh, write, get your rear end in the seat, and write. I'm it's something I need to tell myself. Um, in regard, if you're a blank pager, this is I said I don't teach, but there's one thing I can't teach: just um, trust your uh, process. Be open to your subconscious. Be open if you're going to be a blank pager. You got to wander. Um, otherwise, you'd be smart enough not to. So let yourself wander and let that. For, it, well, it, it came from John Lesquag, and he said at a conference I saw, he said, I allow my first draft, I allow, I allow myself, I tell myself it's okay if my first draft is shit. <laughs> he said, so, um, and I completely agree, but it's never as crappy as it's, you think it is. Because mm -hmm. I, I once I finally read it at the end, I I read all the way through as opposed to being. I used to be in a writers group where you'd always read it. You know, you read passages, and you go, I don't even know where this is going. But then you do know where it's going when you read it all the way through. I'm going to have to revise the heck out of this, but it's actually pretty good. Because when I'm writing, I think this is terrible. You don't know what you're doing. It's you're a farce. They're gonna they're gonna figure it out that you don't know what you're doing on this book and so far i don't some have figured it out but i don't think everybody has so do you um type directly on the computer yes i'm not a very good typist and how do you how do you stop hitting the delete key if you don't think it's very good you know that it's going to be better you know that it's probably better than you think well i revise every day i revise what i wrote the day before i got that from uh, lawrence block a book i read from lawrence block and it makes sense anyway Especially if you're a blank pager, because revising is good, but it also gets you back in the flow of the of the story. Um, so I'm all, I'm constantly polishing it, and um, 
Well, I don't, I, I, I allow myself to know it's not good. So I don't, I don't delete. Now the next day I might, um, but no, I let it all, let this bad stuff flow in there. Every once in a while, I find a little gem buried under there. And on that note, I want to thank you so much for uh, well, thank you. time. It's been great. Thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun. Thanks to all of you for taking the time to listen. And a huge thanks to our Patreon supporters who help to make this show possible. I should say, I also have a Substack page called Pen on Fire. And there you can find more with Matt, things we didn't get to on the show. Thank you to Travis Barrett, who does our music and sound editing. By the way, if you like the music you hear on the show, you can find an album's worth of typewriter music on Spotify. Search out the artist Just My Type. Travis also has other music on there under his name. You can access our archive of shows, 25 years worth, at writersonwriting.com. And if you want to get in touch with us, email writersonwritingpodcast at gmail.com. You can reach Travis Barrett at travisbarrettcreative at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. And in the meantime, remember to stay in the chair. Thank you.